That's a clown question, bro. Hey, what's up on you? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. Welcome to the show to be named later, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. Uh, I am your host, Christianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm coming straight off some KBO action out there in Korea. Electric. Uh, big Twins guy. Big Twins guy over here. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the most of the two people I've seen who have talked about the KBO. Uh, those are the, that's the team they're rolling with. So, I mean, I guess, I guess we have to go with that team. Mm-hmm. It's say, I mean, yeah, desperate, a, desperate times call for desperate measures. You know, you don't usually expect the KBO to be shown on ESPN, but when a global pandemic hits and Korea is good to go, you got to do what you got to do, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it kind of teaches us a, a new culture of baseball. I'm still kind of, rolling with the with the throwback train because honestly i like i've been going chronologically watching old or not old but playoff games from like earlier this decade and i want to get to the 2015 playoffs because i barely remember them for some reason i don't know why well hey i'm just saying maybe maybe one day we'll be forced to yeah maybe maybe one day but you know maybe it's maybe but uh kbo is KBO is definitely, definitely uh, keeping us entertained at the moment. Um, I, For sure. You know, it might be something that kind of fades away, but right now, pretty exciting stuff. Um, Live baseball. We haven't had that in, yeah. since, I mean, I guess spring training, but other than that, the World Series last year. Yeah, live competitive baseball yeah. games that are trying to be won. And, uh, yeah, like – there's definitely a, a need for that. And South Korea is definitely, definitely giving that to us. But uh, yeah, that was, that was the only major thing to happen in the MLB world or, or the baseball world uh, as of late. But yeah. today we are doing, we are doing an, an uh, entire episode uh, dedicated to, First half of the episode is going to be dedicated to Albert Pujols' career. Yes, the man in the background right there. And we are the second half of the episode, we are going to be talking about the season of the 1995 Braves uh, and how they, were, how they were able to kind of uh, finally, uh, finally uh, tie the knot there. Yeah, it was a long time coming. Yeah. Um, so first half of the episode with going to Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols grew up in Santo Domingo uh, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of like a. By the way, I think this is our uh, second. This is our second straight um, Latin American player. Yeah, second straight Latin American player. Um, fittingly on Cinco de Mayo. Of course. As of as this is being and recorded. So, um, MLB Network had Albert Pools Day yesterday to uh, hype up this show, of course. Uh, yesterday, as in the day that we're recording this, we're recording on Cinco de Mayo. You're probably going to be seeing this later, but 
uh, as of now in our time that's the date yeah yeah um yeah so yeah i mean yeah obviously on cinco de mayo and yesterday uh yesterday was the anniversary of his 3000th hit um so i think that's mm-hmm. kind of why the day was dedicated to him but that's uh that's for later in the episode so he grew up in santo domingo Domin- in the dominican republic um and kind of had a like a a folky tale like a like a kind of just in folklore he would use uh limes as baseballs and a milk carton as a glove and i don't know how the milk carton thing worked it's just what i read in the in a sports illustrated article i'd really like to see how that worked maybe i can google some pictures of that but definitely uh he he didn't he didn't have a milk carton yeah, it definitely wasn't made by Rawlings or Mizuno or anything like that. Definitely, uh, definitely not not that. And uh, you know, baseball. I get baseball was kind of in his DNA. Uh, his father was a great softball pitcher uh, in his community, but uh, you know, he was a seemingly good guy. But sometimes he would get you know blackout drunk. And he would have to be dragged and carried by a young Albert Pujols back to the house. Uh, and Albert was about, you know, 10 when this started happening. So I, I wonder how long the treks were, but uh, I really hope. Yeah, I, I really mean, hope it wasn't anything huge. Santo Domingo's doesn't have a you know, good reputation among baseball players for being the safest place. Uh, David Ortiz is another guy who grew up in that area. And I actually, I read uh, part of his book and he talked about like how, like he had to be taught at a young age, like what cocaine looked like. And he had to like learn, like if anyone gives us to don't take it, don't do anything with it and run away. Like he, he would have to stop playing in the yard uh, early at night because he'd hear gunshots. So, I mean, yeah, obviously not the safest neighborhood, not even close to that. Uh, And as a, as a young kid, you know, being 10 years old, like Albert was like, that's a that's a huge obstacle in your life, especially when you're trying to get to where he eventually made it to. Yeah, definitely a, a huge distraction. You don't have um, the best, you know, materials available. You don't have the best gear available. And also you have to worry about uh, street life, depending where you are in the Dominican Republic. You got to um, survive the day. Yeah, and... Yeah, you notice a lot of guys who came out of the Dominican Republic, you know, once they start getting money, they start giving right back to the Dominican Republic because uh, they know they know how much it needs to be improved. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was maybe that was part of the reason that uh, Pujols, along with his father and grandmother, immigrated to New York City in 1996 when he was 16. Uh, for from what we're aware of, 16 years old, and uh, his stay in New York City was not very long because, uh, you know, speaking of gunshots, saw a man get shot mm-hmm. at a grocery store, uh, and then the uh, and then the Pujols's made uh, the sojourn over to Independence, Missouri, 
where I'm guessing, you know, I've never really heard of the place, probably less gunshots for sure. Probably a, a nice rural place uh, in Missouri. And, uh, you know, he didn't know a lot of English, but one language he did know, of course, was baseball. So goes in uh, in his senior year of high school. Um, people did not believe he was 18 at all. This is ridiculous, this senior year that he had at Independence. Yeah, people did not believe he was 18 at all. You know, I, I don't know if they had validation. They may or may not have, but it's not about that. What it's about is he was walked 55 in 55 out of 88 plate appearances in protest because teams did not believe that he was 18. Uh, that, autumn, that alone is a 625 OBP. That alone. And then when you add in... Like the hits? In... In his 33 at-bats, he had eight home runs. Yeah. That already gets you almost a 1,000 slugging percentage, not even including singles or doubles or triples. Mm -hmm. So that was his senior year. Uh, he doesn't get drafted out of high school. Maybe, you know, not enough eyes got to him. Uh, so he goes to Maplewoods Community College, which was in Kansas City, Missouri, close to home. And, uh, of course, when he goes to that community college, uh, hits 461 with 22 home runs in what I would guess was a, a relatively short season. I don't think they were playing much more than 50 games. So yeah. 22 home runs is really something to admire there. And that performance was able to get him drafted. And, you know, obviously it's drafted way too low. Probably, you know, if you do a redraft, would be, the number one pick in that draft but he was drafted in the 13th round not the 13th pick the 13th round was drafted your team, your team had at least probably 12 chances to draft Albert Pujols and they didn't yeah yeah of, of course and if you're a Cardinals fan you're they lucky. had 12 chances and got him on the 13th mm -hmm. and uh yeah he gets drafted by the Cardinals in the 13th round and uh you know teams had Whatever, whatever biases they had, kind of dumb biases. Some didn't think uh, that he was actually his age. And, you know, in all sports, youth is definitely valued. So, you'd, you know, you'd rather draft a guy who you think is 19 instead of a guy who you think is 21. But, I mean, I think the lines are kind of blurred in the later rounds. But, but anyway... Uh, the Kansas City Royals were kind of scrutinized main, mainly because, I mean, they were right, they were right next door. They were right in uh, in Kansas City to see Maplewoods Community College. And the quote yeah. from Alan Baird, who was the general manager of the Kansas City Royals at the time, said, "We all saw Ro we all saw Albert about the same way. We weren't sure he had a position. He didn't have a great baseball body. We all saw him the same way, and we were all wrong." So, you know, in, you know, obviously it makes sense that they're getting scrutinized for that in hindsight, but like in the moment he was in the 13th round, the Cardinals probably didn't have the highest of expectations for him when they drafted him either. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we're going to get into because, you know, a 13th rounder in the minors doesn't really get, you know, a lot <laughs> of respect. You're definitely on a deadline to, you're definitely on a deadline to start producing because if you don't produce, 
there's 40 more guys or at the time 50 more guys uh that are going to try to take your spot so there's definitely uh it's definitely time to get going uh once you get drafted and that's exactly what albert pujols did so he goes to a ball in peoria and he slashes 324 389 565 for a 953 ops he played most of his season there uh and that slash line was able to get him uh, to skip double A. And he actually went to triple A uh, for the brief rest of the regular season. And then he goes into the postseason and he wins postseason MVP in the Pacific Coast League playoffs, which of course was in triple A. Uh, and that definitely made an impression on the Cardinals or- organization. Um, easy top 100 prospect. Yeah. And you know, he gets invited to Cardinals training camp, but he still doesn't have that same respect as, as a top prospect. He's a, he's a non-roster invitee. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, yeah, he goes in, he's not supposed to get a ton of at-bats, but, you know, he's, you know, he just makes some sort of impression to the manager, Tony LaRussa, and he's able to make the roster right out of camp. That's right. And he ended up having his rookie season with St. Louis in 2001, making it out of training camp, like Chris mentioned, as a non-roster invite. Really impressive. And he did quite a bit of everything for St. Louis uh, in his first year. He played 39 games in left field, 39 games in right field as well, 42 at first base and 55 at third base. Keep in mind, uh, this is when Mark McGuire was at first base for the Cardinals. And for the whole season, he slashed 329, 403, 610, 1013. Really good, especially for a rookie that just made it out of training camp. And by the way, from July 28th to September 22nd of that very season, he had a 48 game on base streak, which he slashed 377, 447, 705, 1152. Uh, the highest OPS and most RBIs. Uh, which he had 130 of by a rookie since 1939, Ted Williams at the time. He easily won rookie of the year. He was also fourth in the MVP voting. Uh, and the Cardinals did end up making it to the playoffs that year. They made it in the wild card spot. But unfortunately, uh, Pujols and the team struggled against the eventual World Series champion, uh, Arizona Diamondbacks. So that is Albert Pujols' already destructive rookie year. You know, Chris, a lot of these discussions that we've done on these players it's always like you know they had a couple like many years here and then they really started to pick it up our bulls hit the ground running as soon as he got to the majors and he just didn't stop yeah absolutely absolutely so then in 2002 uh he mostly plays left field uh including with 03 as well uh tino martinez was at first base and in 2002 he had a 955 ops second in the mvp voting also an 883 OPS in the playoffs, they did not end up making it to the World Series, however. Uh, yeah, and, you know, 955 OPS, that ended up probably being uh, the worst season of his first 10 years, yeah. which is crazy considering that he, uh, he finished second in the MVP voting. And then things really, like, he was already kicked into gear, and now he's on, like, 11th gear you know, if that, if that exists, 2003, he wins the batting title with a 359 batting average also has a 439 on base, 
a 667 slugging and an 1106 OPS. Led the league in hits, runs, and doubles, and finished second in the NL in uh, baseball reference war and second in the MVP voting. We all know who was winning MVPs in, in 2001 to 2004, so we definitely understand uh, why why that was the case. And he Make no mistake of, about it, Albert Pujols was not robbed in any of these years. Yeah, for definitely not, definitely not. Uh, and he is one of three players after that 2003 season. It made him one of three players in the live ball era to have a 1,000 career OPS through their age 23 season. And the other two players were Ted Williams and Jimmy Fox, two of the greatest pure hitters ever. And then for reference, you mentioned the live ball era. That is, uh, that is 1920 we're talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you also have to consider, you know, Ted Williams played uh, in the 40s and 50s. Fox played uh, in like the 20s and 30s for the most part. This is the first time this has happened in about 60 years. Mm-hmm. About 60 years this has happened. And, uh, you know, he's definitely, yeah, making a name for himself for sure. Then in 2004, there's no one in the way for him at first base. He becomes a first-time first baseman, or a full-time first baseman, rather. Um, and, for the first time. You know, now he's, yeah, now he's, uh, now he's comfortable where, where he is uh, defensively because I can't imagine he was really excited to, to strap it on as a left fielder every day. Then, then uh, he hits very well again, has a 1,072 OPS. But it's not about – in 2004, it was not about what he did in the regular season. You know, everyone knows about, you know, how great of a, how great of a hitter he was in the regular season. It's about what he did in the postseason. And this team does not get to the World Series without Albert Pujols without a doubt, uh, in the division series against the Dodgers. Goes 5 for 15 with three walks, has two home runs and five RBI, uh, and also .41 win probability add, added, which is you know pretty high, especially for a four-game series. And yeah. it was a four-game series because in game four, uh, it was tied 2-2, and he hit a go-ahead, home, go-ahead three-run home run uh, and, you know, the Cardinals eventually win that game, sending them to the NLCS. And, you know, you think 5-15, three walks. I mean, that's a very good series. Folks, that was just a warm-up. That was just a warm-up. In the NLCS, he really turns things on. Game one, two for three, two walks with a home run and two RBI. He got, he got on base in four out of five plate appearances. Then, in game two, goes three for four and uh, really clutches it up. Really clutches it up, as I am about to show you right here. Uh, Situation is, it's four to four. Houston, St. Louis is ahead in the series, one game to zero. It's four to four in the bottom of the ninth. And... Here's the at-bat. Looks like he's leading off the inning. Here we are.
a solo shot to take the lead for the Cardinals, which uh, which makes it five to four. Um, the batter after him, uh, Scott Rowland, actually hit a home run as well, making it six to four. They win that game, and they are ahead two games to none, uh, basically on the back of Albert Pujols. Then uh, game three, the Cardinals end up losing that game. Uh, I think he only got on base one time in that game. Game four, he's back to back to playoff Pujols. Three for four, a walk, a home run, and three RBI. And they still lost the game, unfortunately, for the Cardinals. And the series was tied two to two. Game five, I don't even know what happened in game five. I mean, they the Astros were able to figure him out for one game. He, he doesn't get on base at all. Or I don't I, I don't think he got a hit. He might have gotten on base, but he, he didn't get a hit. And the Astros won that game. Astros are up three games to two, uh, looking ahead to might what might have been their first World Series of the, at the time. Would've Not been. sure. Yes. But in game six, you know you have to rely on Albert Pujols. You know he has to come back. And that's exactly what he does. He has a three-for-five game, a walk, a home run, and two RBI in uh, what ended up being an extra inning victory uh, that tied the series up in game seven. They win that game and Albert Pujols is named the NLCS MVP. Of course you have to give it to him. Easiest decision ever. Yeah. Easiest decision ever. He had a four, he went 14 for 28. Uh, That is a 500 batting average, a 563 on base percentage. 1,000 slugging for a 15.63 OPS. Pretty good. Four home runs and nine RBI. Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely insane for one series. And, you know, he has a pretty, he has a pretty decent series uh, in the World Series, but Red Sox came off the greatest comeback, greatest series comeback probably in sports history. Um and he wasn't really, he wasn't really gonna carry the team on the back for that one. Uh, the Red Sox kind of. The Red Sox the, were loaded on momentum in that series. They had just come off, like you said, the best comeback in sports history. Uh, nobody yeah, was. and he's he was still able to go five for fifteen in that series. It's just there weren't a lot of guys for him to drive in. The... Just the cards did not align or the stars did not align, the cards did not align. The stars did not align uh, for the Cardinals. Yeah, the cards didn't either. Yeah, the, <laughs> but the stars did not align for that one. But, you know, Albert Pujols still has a lot of opportunities to uh, do more playoff things in the future. In the future, uh, I guess we'll go forward to 2005, the very next year. Albert Pujols does what no one else in the NL has done since... 2000 and that is not be named Barry Bonds and win the NL MVP that's right Lord Barry gave the rest of the league permission to win MVPs and naturally the torch was passed down to Albert Pujols of course he wins his first most valuable player award with a 1039 OPS as well as 16 stolen bases and the Cardinals once again made the playoffs uh, and they swept the National League Division Series Pujols going four for nine with four walks three of them being intentional and in the NLCS, unfortunately, they lost the series. But probably the highlight of that entire series wasn't even the team that won. It was Albert Pujols 
coming up to the plate against a red-hot Brad Lidge, the Astros' closer, facing elimination down to their final out. Houston was ready to celebrate going to the World Series, just one out away. And what does Pujols do? Is he going to run on the parade, or is he going to lay down and die? Here it is. In the air, left field, and Pools has given St. Louis the lead. A dramatic, towering three-run home run. Stunned in disbelief here in Houston. A single by Eckstein, a walk to Edmonds, and how about Albert Pools? That is uh, 40,000 people just dying inside in one second. Absolutely. Uh, the, the Astros do end up winning the um, the next game and moving to the World Series. Uh, and the Cardinals would seek a better opportunity in 2006, and Pujols would be at the forefront of that. He sets career highs in home runs with 49, RBIs with 37, and OPS 1102. An 11.02 OPS. That obviously led the MLB. Uh, he hit 397 with runners in scoring position. He won his first gold glove, and he leads the NL in war, but he lost the MVP to Ryan Howard, who had 58 home runs and 149 RBIs. A, transit, a, a generational year for Ryan Howard, so I guess you really can't, you really can't get too upset at that one. Um, and he was pitched around a lot in the playoffs. 13 walks in 16 games, a 439 OBP throughout the playoffs with a 9 59 OPS, and oh, by the way, he helped the Cardinals win a World Series that year. Uh, sorry, my mom was calling me. She totally forgot that I was doing the show. Uh, so, yeah, Albert Pujols, where'd you leave off? He won the World Series for the Cardinals in 06. Yeah, won the World Series. Uh, yeah, and he finally – he wasn't at the forefront of the postseason performances, but you know he was—he uh, was definitely—he was rewarded for everything that he did in '04 and '05, and you know he was obviously, as you said, the numbers were very good in uh, mm -hmm. in 2006 as well. I mean, it's tough to produce when you're getting walked almost one time per game. And obviously the, the pitch, you know, there was nothing going over the middle of the plate. Uh, wasn't a lot of, you know, straight fastballs for him. So, you know, definitely, uh, definitely earned that World Series. And then in 2007, uh, he has, for him, I guess a down year, still led the National League in wins above replacement, had a high defensive wins above replacement. So uh, whatever metrics baseball reference had that they had him having his best defensive year in 2007 uh still had a 997 ops and a career low ninth in the mvp vote <laughs> a career low ninth in the mvp vote oh. but he's able to make up for that in 2008 where uh he has probably the best season of his career hits 357 uh, which uh, wins the batting title, I'm pretty sure, uh, has a 462 on-base percentage, a 653 slugging, and an 1114 OPS. That 1114 OPS, by the way, 
remains the highest OPS in a single season since 2005. That's it right. is the highest OPS in a single season in the last 15 years. And the only guy that's stopping that from going any further is Barry Bonds. Yes, yes. You know, if, if Barry Bonds wasn't there, I, I, guess, I guess, I mean, uh, you know, McGuire and Sosa were there too. Sure. But, you know, definitely since that, since the offense uh, really amped up or juiced up, I guess. And in 2009, he continues his dominance, has an 11.01 OPS, to go along with 16 stolen bases, the guy was, you know, really doing everything. The 16 stolen bases is is considerably su- surprising. Uh, you don't really think about him being fleet of foot necessarily, but mm-hmm. was able to get 16 stolen bases. Uh, I think that's what Mookie Betts had this year, and yeah. you know, to go along with an 11.01 OPS, one MVP unanimously. Uh, for the first time in his career. Uh, then, the you know, the Cardinals go into the playoffs, uh, but he's pretty much pitched around again because of his reputation, especially in the playoffs. Uh, goes three for 10, also with three walks. Uh, that's a walk per game, has a 462 on base percentage, uh, and the Cardinals ended up getting swept uh, by the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, yeah, he led... So, you know, that ends the decade, that ends the, the book on the 2000s, and he leads the National League in F4 in the 2000s, and that's with him not even playing in the year 2000. Yeah. It's, uh, it's nine years against 10, and he still came out on top. Yeah. So in 2010, he has the end of his career with St. Louis, uh, a it's a 10-11 OPS uh, in 2010, which led the NL. Uh, he also led the NL in war. He won his second gold glove and finished second in the MVP voting that year. And in yeah. 2011, um, he had a career low, 906 OPS. He is, his career was a decade old, and he still hadn't seen a, a sub-900 OPS, which is ridiculous. Finishes fifth in the MVP voting. Uh, he goes seventh for 20 with two walks in the National League Division Series. They win that series. He goes 11 for 23 in the NLCS with four walks, two home runs, and nine RBIs. His slash line of 478, 556, 913, 1469 to advance to the World Series. And in the World Series, he accomplished something that only two other men had done beforehand. Chris is going to pull up a highlight video real quick. It 11 to 6 here in the sixth. His third hit of the night, his first home run of this World Series. And this thing was blasted. This is how you turn around. Heard about it. The Cardinal fans know him. Here's one into left center field. Back at the track. He's got another. And more respect. Unbelievable. As he's hit a three-run shot, now a two-run shot. And the Cardinals lead it 14-6 to six in the seventh. 
four for his last four at bats. Five RBIs, three runs scored. And Albert Pools, after being hitless through the first two games, is heating up. The base hit, did the same in the fifth, the three-run rally, and then hit a three-run home run in the sixth, and a two-run shot in the seventh. Rangers fan is thinking I had to watch Pujols have four hits, two home runs. And he hits me, and here goes one in the left. How about three on the night in a row? A three-run shot, a two-run home run, and now a solo blast. And Albert Pujols has tied Reggie Jackson with three home runs against the Rangers in game three. So Albert Pujols, it's three home runs in the World Series. The most impressive part of that, his first home run was in the sixth inning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like... He was definitely... He was lucky to get even close to a third at-bat in that time frame. Yeah, I mean, it definitely shows uh, what the Cardinals offense was able to do that night. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Cardinals also ended up winning the World Series that year. And that would, unfortunately, for better or for worse, be it for Albert Pujols' Cardinals career. Yeah, and what he did with the Cardinals is absolutely historic. What will be t- – his first 10 years will be talked about till the rest of time. I mean, mm-hmm. from 2001 to 2010, this is well he's you – know, 2001 is his first year. And from 01 to 2010, leads all of baseball in wins above replacement – also leads all of baseball in doubles, runs, uh, average at 331, slugging at 624, uh, and OPS at 1050. The slugging and OPS are minimum 4,000 plate appearances because uh, of a guy previously mentioned would not allow Pujols to lead uh slugging and OPS because of what he was able to do early in the decade, but minimum 4,000 plate appearances uh, led the, led in the entire major league baseball in slugging and OPS. And then from 2003 to 2009, which was the prime of the prime, he led in all of those categories and home runs, RBI and on base percentage. So he was basically the whole Rolodex of offense Albert Pujols was at the top of that list. Then you look at it from a historical perspective. What, how does it compare to the rest of baseball history going back to, you know, 1871, going back to the World Series, the first World Series, 1903? In his first 10 seasons, of all Major League Baseball players in their first 10 seasons, he had the second most wins above replacement of all time uh, behind Ted Williams. And he was first all time in home runs for players in their first 10 seasons, had 408 home runs in those first 10 seasons, was basically on track to be the home run king. And uh, also in those first 10 seasons had seven, eight win seasons. Uh, That's wins above replacement, of course, seven, eight win seasons in those first 10 years. He's the only player to ever do that. Only player to have seven, eight win seasons in the first 10 years of his career. Ridiculous. 
And uh, between 03 and 09, which I talked about uh, just now, he is the only, uh, or he's not the only. So he had seven, uh, he had seven eight-win seasons in a row. All, all his eight-win seasons were in a row. The only other players in MLB history to do that were Willie Mays and Babe Ruth. Good company. Yeah, that's, uh, you could argue those are the best two players of all time. And then there's Albert Pujols right with him. So yeah. uh, he leaves St. Louis uh, and signs with the Los Angeles Angels. A 10-year, $240 million contract. That would be the second biggest contract in baseball history at the time. Uh, the one person ahead of him was A-Rod with $252 million. And his first year with the Angels was uh, quite a down year alone. I remember in 2012, if you go to fan graphs, he pretty much set career lows across the entire dashboard. And still, yeah. still a 30-home run season, which is pretty impressive. But he was never really a- able to replicate his Cardinals tenure uh, in L.A. Uh, so far, a 258, 314, 450, 764 career slash line with the Angels. Also, a 278 average with runners in scoring position, averaging 96 RBI per year. And, you know, as he comes late into his career, the milestones start to hit. So on April 22nd, 2014, uh, the Angels were in Washington. It was the big Mike Trout-Bryce Harper matchup, but the real eyes were on Albert Pujols as he was sitting on 499 career home runs. Actually, I think he hit his 499th and 500 that game, if I'm not mistaken. Here it is. Yet again. Now the one-two. Albert drives one out to left center field. This ball's hit well. There she goes. Welcome to the 500 home run club, Albert Pujols. Albert hits his 500th home run, and he he wasn't going to stop there. On June 3rd, 2017, I actually remember this uh, day. I was watching this game live. There was It ended up being a grand slam, and there were like eight or nine uh, grand slams across baseball that day. It was just a crazy day, and one of them being Albert Pujols' 600th career home run. He became the ninth player to ever do that. The one-two. Breaking ball out toward left field, hugging the line. This one's got a chance to go. Big fly for Albert Pujols, number 600. Albert Pujols, the ninth man in Major League Baseball history to get to number 600, and it was a dramatic towering shot down the line with the bases loaded. So now starts the countdown to 3,000 hits. So there it is. Albert Pujols hits his 600th career home run. Uh, he currently has 656, I believe. So he is yes, only 656. 
he's only four away from tying Willie Mays. So he's got some time to go. Also, on May 4th, 2018, uh, he becomes, I believe, the 28th member, uh, if I'm not mistaken, of the 3,000. Uh, 32nd. 30 se- Is there really that many? Wow. Okay. Well, I was dead wrong. <laughs> Uh, he becomes the 32nd member of the 3,000 hit club in Seattle. Uh, very unpujols like hit, but 3,000 is 3,000. Chris, roll the roll yeah. The, tape. The, the Babbitt gods were definitely with Albert Pujols on this one. One zero pitch. There's a flare out to right field, and there it is. Hit number 3,000 for Albert Pujols. The fourth player in Major League Baseball history with at least 600 home runs and 3,000 hits. Joining Hank Garrett, Willie Mays, and Alex Rodriguez. Add Albert Pujols to that list. And what a moment this is for Albert with his team. So, I mean, you heard those, you heard those names there that were also on the 600 home run, 3,000 hit club. Uh, Willie Mays. Hank Aaron, Alex Rodriguez, Albert Pujols. That is some good company right there. Yes, yes. And uh, Pujols, obviously a, a very religious man because mm-hmm. I just noticed when uh, first thing he does is he hits first base, he lets out a very passionate thank you to the sky. Yep. Uh, that was, I found that pretty humorous. Definitely a, a fun way to, to thank God there. I mean, hey, he had to go through a lot of obstacles to get to that point. You know, he could have very easily uh, not made it out of Santo Domingo. So it does, like, I'm definitely not going to knock him for it at all. Yeah, we're definitely going to. And, you know, he definitely uh, carried that into what he was able to do humanitarily, which we're, we're going to get into uh, mm-hmm. in, in our last Pujol segment of the episode. That's right. Uh, we have another milestone. Uh, on May 9th, 2019, he becomes the fourth member of the 2000 Runs Batted In Club. Uh, this is one that sort of didn't get as much recognition, but definitely deserves so. And of course, he does it with a home run. Nobody on now for Albert. Carpenter's recorded one strikeout. That was of Albert in the first. This one's out to deep left field, and that is long gone. Big fly for Albert Pujols. Career RBI number 2,000. What a moment for Albert Pujols. 639th home run results in RBI number 2,000. In his career, it's the third player in the history of the game. I'm glad so many people got to see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, the crowds in Detroit. I mean, that that's an exclusive ticket, though. You know. Yeah. There is there is one more. Uh, I guess it's not really a milestone, but one other thing I wanted to uh, share that isn't on the prep sheet. In 2019, Albert Pujols, this was long overdue, but he made his return to St. Louis as a visiting player. And Chris, why don't you uh, real quick get this video pulled up? He he did the absolute perfect thing here. First of all, he gets a standing ovation and every single at bat throughout the weekend series. I believe he had 14 plate appearances. He got a standing ovation and uh, the game stopped for each, each and every one of them. And during the Saturday game, uh, he did what everyone in the crowd and around the world was hoping he would do. And it was a beautiful moment in St. Louis. 
Yeah, uh, it's hard to filter through here. There's about nine minutes of video, but I mean, basically kind of, I'll turn the volume down a little bit or, you know, you can see just the appreciation. And, you know, we sometimes we like to, uh, to acknowledge the St. Louis fans in a negative way, but they do love their baseball players. Yeah. And that is driven out to deep left field. That is out of here. Big fly for Albert Pujols. I mean, how perfect is it that, like, it wasn't even a home run that was going to affect the game? Because I feel like the reaction yeah. would be a little different if it was, you know, like tied Ninth four inning, or yeah, like Cardinals on the playoff hunt. Yeah, it was kind of a, you know, essentially useless home run. So that was perfect to have in Bush Stadium. Uh, and you have to figure Dakota Hudson is probably throwing a meatball there anyway. Yeah, you could. Yeah, you and definitely that. have to consider that. Um. I mean, how often do you really see that kind of an ovation in a, in a standing O for a visiting player? Like, the only times I can really think of in, like, modern history is that and Chase Utley returning to Philly. Yeah, you never really see that. I mean, it wasn't, you know, quite the reception, but um, Mike Yastrzemski got some yeah. cheers at Fenway, but it wasn't like the entire stadium was standing up. Yeah. Yeah, you, um, you just don't see that. And by the way, why did it take so long for him to go back to St. Louis? Like, this is 2019, and he signed in 2012. Why did the schedule makers not do that sooner? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, usually uh, you're, you're at a ballpark every six years at the least. They should, have done, they should have done that immediately. Like, the first time the Angels and Cardinals play each other, got to be in St. Louis, got to have Albert Pujols. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's – that was his age, what, 39 or 40 season? I mean, it was last year. It could have been, it could have been, uh, but I mean, you know, thank, thankfully, thankfully for his contract, I don't think he would have retired, but yeah, you know, he might've not been able to play, <laughs> you exactly. know, as a 39 year old. But, but hey, he, he still had it and hit a home run right into the bullpen. Yeah. And if you're wondering why the reception was so, wonderful it's because he's one of the all-time greats and he did he did most of that with St. Louis uh he, where where he ranks amongst uh amongst a active players and b uh everyone in MLB history you know he he's sixth all-time in home runs with 656 he's 15th all-time in hits with 3203 seventh all-time in doubles with 661 uh, fifth in total bases and fourth all time in RBI with 2,075, and he is the active leader in all of those categories I just mentioned, along with plate appearances, at bats, runs, walks, intentional walks, and sacrifice flies. And you know you saw that he has a lot of doubles and a lot of home runs. He is the only player 
in MLB history to have 650 plus home runs along with 650 plus doubles. Uh, you know, he's talk about exclusive. He's the only one to ever do that. Yeah. And, I mean, you talk about 19,000 men have stepped on major league baseball fields. We've gone through Babe Ruth. We've gone through Rogers Hornsby. We've gone through Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Barry Bonds. Nobody else did that. Albert Pujols did it though. Yeah. And it's, it speaks to how pure of a hitter uh, he is. He's going to get on base whenever he can. I mean, that's one thing uh, that, you know, I saw that I took away from in uh, MLB tonight's uh, episode or show about him. He Mm. was, he was like, I'm a line drive hitter who can hit home runs. That's that, that's a testament to how, you know, pure of a hitter you are. Yeah. You, know, you, you can hit, you know, he's literally a career 300 hitter and, you know, he's sixth all time in home runs. Can't get, can't get any better than that. Chris, you know then, what he is? Yeah. He, he's a machine. He is a machine. Yeah. He's a machine. He's the, the machine. He's the machine. Um, and uh, yeah. So uh, he, as I'm mentioning he is uh he is he is still active he's you know our first player that we're covering that uh that is active there may or may not be mm-hmm. another active player or two um but he is the first one we are covering so we have to cover you know what his potential is so he needs 5 home runs to pass Willie Mays uh he needs 41 to pass Alex Rodriguez and if you want to fly a bit close to the sun uh if he hits 59 he passes babe ruth and uh becomes third all time but it really sucks that that coronavirus is cutting his his potential season short like that's gonna this could be time we look back on is like man Albert Pujols really could have done something he could have got to 714 he could have got to 696 to get a rod he could have you know he could have been up to third like I don't I don't see him beating Aaron or Bonds but if you really, yeah. yeah, like you said, if you really want to fly close to the sun, he could be Babe Ruth. Yeah, if if you want to do that, if he's able to be healthy and because you know he's still, you know, we his OPS isn't great, but he's still pumping out home runs and RBI. Yeah, uh, and he's also getting hits as well. He needs 118 hits uh, to get into the top 10 and pass Paul Molitor, who is a show to be named later uh, history episode alum. And he needs 12 RBI to be third in RBI. Crazy. And uh, also, you know, if we want to fly close to the sun, uh, he needs 223 RBI to break the record. And, you know, he, he's averaging with the Angels, he's averaging 96 per year. So his contract ends. And, and he's going to have Anthony Rendon in the lineup with him too. Yeah, you have Trout and Rendon ahead of you. And, uh, you know, he, his contract ends after 2021. Um, he's, I think he said that he wants to play through the contract and maybe after. So, uh, you know, who knows the, the potential records that uh, Albert Pujols could break. But you do mention that he is the machine. Mm-hmm. He's not uh, the comedian who told the story about robbing the Russian mafia. He's the machine. He is the, you know, sixth all time in, in home runs, 15th all time in hits. Uh, you know, there's a reason why they call him that. 
And this is, and SportsCenter paid homage to that nickname, which is what I'm going to show to you. Probably the, the, you know, funniest thing we have about Albert Pujols. Um, and do you know when this aired? Uh, I don't. I'm assuming it was like late in his Cardinals tenure. I mean, obviously he has the Cardinal uniform on there. Uh, I don't know the exact day though. Yeah, I, I would imagine that was probably 08 or 09. Yeah. When he was solidified as like the best player in baseball. Yeah. I'm just Albert. There he is. ESPN hits the nail on the head on those commercials every single time. They never miss. Yeah, that's and that was peak Sports Center, like for sure. Late two thousands Sports Center was amazing. Like yeah, Stuart I Scott, mean, all those guys. Oh, R.I.P. Stuart Scott. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I remember my like in my childhood, I would watch ESPN uh, before school every single day in like middle school, and like every time I'd see a new one of those commercials, I'd be like, "Oh, here we go! Like this is gonna be a good one." Yeah, yeah, you know, you have you have uh, Dale Earnhardt uh, digging out the speed bump. That was Jimmy Johnson. <laughs> or, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Jimmy Johnson. Um, Dale, fact, Dale Earnhardt did another one. Yeah, I think he did. Um, yeah, there's yeah. there's so many good ones. The Eli the Eli Manning and Peyton Manning one where they're like taking the tour of uh of the facility and they're like fighting with each other. <laughs> yeah, like, it's just spectacular premise after spectacular premise. They they nail it every single time. On those. yeah, the machine, the machine was more than what he showed on the field. So, mm -hmm. uh, it his story he he has the Pujols Family Foundation. Uh, his story is that he met his wife, Dee Dee. He was 18 in a in a 21 and over club, so she had the impression that he was also 21. Uh, Dee Dee was uh, t was actually 21, and she already had a daughter uh, who happened to have Down syndrome. And you know, Albert Pujols actually married uh, Dee Dee and uh, helped raise. The daughter, uh, her name is Isabella. And in 2005, uh, he decides to start the Pujols Family Foundation, uh, which seeks to improve the lives of those with Down syndrome and uh, also to improve the lives of the impoverished in the Dominican Republic, as I mentioned, giving back uh, back home. In 2008, uh, he won the Roberto Clemente Award, uh, which was you know, named after the guy that we did an episode about last week. You can go listen to that. And, uh, you know, he's a, he was, he was definitely really special in St. Louis with uh, the National Down Syndrome Society. Uh, St. Louis would host a buddy walk uh, for National Down Syndrome Society every year. And on those days, uh, while he was with the Cardinals, he hit six home runs uh, in, and this, this article was from 2009. Mm -hmm. So 
or two, no, it was from 2008. So uh, it had been that it was six home runs in, in eight of those games, I believe. And, uh, and yeah, he, he was, he was always told, you know, some, someone would throw the first pitch and they'd ask uh, Albert to hit a home run for them. And uh, most of the time it came through. Yeah. And, you know, he's kind of a hero in that uh, community, also the Dominican Republic, um, and definitely deserving of that Roberto Clemente Award in 2008. For sure. So that wraps up our uh, Albert Pujols yeah. uh, half of the episode, for sure. I have a few and, takeaways. Yeah. Uh, my main takeaway is that, listen, the guy's still going, so – when baseball does come back, if you're going to watch the Angels, you're probably doing it for Mike Trout, and we understand. But let's, let's not forget who the other guy is a couple spots behind him in the order and what he has potentially left to accomplish. Like, just remember that we are still watching one of the greatest of all time. You still have that opportunity. So you might as well take it while we don't have it for much longer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean – despite him not producing the same amount of numbers, he's the same guy in the box. It's the same swing. I think he has the same exact attitude Mm -hmm. that he had as a rookie. Yeah. You're going to, he's a master of hitting and uh, you know, even if he doesn't have the physical ability, he still has that mental sharpness and, you know, maybe this year or the next year, the angels can maybe get into the playoffs and maybe we could get, a little more our last uh our last sights of playoff holes. i would not be opposed to that at all i mean you know like i just mentioned a lot of people want to see the angels in the playoffs for mike trout you know you have anthony rendon coming up now uh and pools does get lost in the shuffle but like we are still watching one of the best of all time like i just said like i will i will repeat that as long as i need to because like you said he's five away five home runs away from passing Willie Mays and Alex Rodriguez and Babe Ruth are not too, too far after that. Yeah. I mean, definitely could be done in the next two seasons. And, you know, obviously they, this pandemic is uh, yeah. altering that, but uh, maybe it's giving him some needed rest and maybe he can come back after 2021. Another 1100 OPS season. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's just revamped and he, wins MVP. It's, yep. it's him and Mike Trout at the, at the MVP race. But yeah, that wraps up our Albert Pujols yeah. uh, segment of the episode. In the snap of a finger, we will be talking about the 1995 World Series champion Atlanta Braves. And we're back for the 1995 uh, portion, 1995 Atlanta Braves portion, not just 1995 the 1995 Braves portion of the episode. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the World Series champions. What was what was uh, the direction that the Braves were kind of going in at the time? So the Braves had been competitive for quite a while. Uh, in 1991 and 1992, they won the NL pennants, and they lost the World Series to the Twins and the Blue Jays, respectively. In 1993, they also won the division – lost in the National League Championship Series to the Phillies. And in 94, they were 68-46, and 46, 
uh, in position to make the NL wild card. Of course, they were behind the Montreal Expos, who were six games up in the division and had by far the best record in baseball. But, of course, the strike short the, shortened the season. There was no World Series. The playoffs were canceled. And the strike actually went into uh, the start of the 95 season. The Braves played their opening day game in, like, late April. So yeah, it was weird. Yeah, it was very weird. Uh, so, I mean, they had been competitive for a while, and their core was, you know, only getting older. So they needed to, they needed to jump on the opportunities while they had them. And they did not get out to that kind of start that they wanted. Uh, in fact, they were 20-17 and 17 into early June, uh, which is obviously not what you want at all when you're trying to defend a title and you should be on top and you should be that hungry to get a World Series. Uh, they also had a five-game losing streak uh, to put them four and a half games out of the division lead. And David Justice had gone under the disabled list. David Justice was one of their top offensive hitters at the time. The offense was just not – it was lacking. The bullpen was kind of here and there. They didn't really have a closer. Uh, and they just needed somebody to step up. So who is it going to be? Well, it was not going to be the guy you expected. It was uh, Mark Wollers. He's a guy from Holyoke, Mass. Shout out to Western Mass. It's only about 20 minutes for – from uh, where we go to college. And the magical turning point was on June 5th, by the way, uh, June 5th, 1995, also uh, two days after my parents got married. So shout out to mom and dad there. Oh, um, yeah. But on June 5th in the baseball world, the Braves defeated the Cubs 7-5. to It was a pretty standard game. Steve Avery actually homered, believe it or not, as a pitcher. But Mark Wolders came out of the bullpen and recorded uh, his first save of the season. And he, he was not the traditional closer, but... They decided to try out him as the closer going forward because he pitched a scoreless ninth, didn't allow any hits, did walk a guy, but nonetheless uh, shut it down when they needed to. Yeah, and he wasn't, he wasn't even spectacular in the middle innings beforehand, but once he got in the ninth inning, I mean, it was, it was all him. There was no doubt he was going to be the closer of that 1995 team. Uh, and, yeah, once – once he's the closer, the team kind of just takes off for whatever reason. Maybe they they had that security. Maybe it was just Waller Waller's uh performance. But he is he gets the team going. Uh, the Braves won seventeen to three after uh, that June fifth game. Put in by fourteen definitely sets the tone for the rest for the rest of that basically entire first half mm -hmm. uh, and from June 5th through the end of the first half, which is the all-star break went 24 and eight, 24 and eight uh, in that 32 game stretch between June 5, June 5th and the rest of the first half. And uh, right before the all-star break end on a nine game winning streak uh, right. to really to really set themselves uh, as the best team in that National League East, for sure. So, at the time, uh, as mentioned, best record in the National League. And uh, right in that nine-game winning streak, um, you know, this team really made an identity as kind of the, the late-inning heroes. You know, the guys who were just kind of able to get the timely hits and on J July 5th, you know, it, it wasn't – they weren't just blowing teams out of the water. They still needed their, their clutch hits. And who did they get it from? 
they get it from a rookie. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. Chipper Jones comes in in the ninth inning tie game, two out in the bottom of the ninth. Chipper Jones bat left-handed, and the Dodgers pay for it. He thinks he's got it, and right about here, he knows he's got it. It is Chipper Jones with, I would guess, was his first career walk-off, uh, first of probably many. Oh yeah. In his career, and you know they didn't, you know they didn't get it just from the stars. They didn't just get it from the non-stars. Everyone. Everyone was able to get in on the late inning action. Uh, and four days later, uh, Fred McGriff is uh, able to show you that. Fred McGriff comes in. They're down two against the San Francisco Giants, the team that had – or no, they weren't the team. But the team they were really competitive with in the 1993 season and probably competitive with uh, – for this season as well. But there's it's two nothing San Francisco. Uh McGriff's got a one two count on him, two men on. Let's see what happens. Walk-offs were a lot different back then. Oh, yeah. That was a very calm celebration there. It's almost like they got used to it, and there's a good reason why they got used to it. They ended up getting 13 walk-offs that year. That's right. So, uh, And if I'm not mistaken, that was on Sunday Night Baseball, primetime television. You got right John Morgan right. on the call. Yeah. So, uh, and that was pretty much right – yeah, that was – how they ended the first half go right into the all-star break off of that uh fred mcgriff for for that uh hit and many other hits he gets the start at first base in the all-star game uh and he's not the only guy to go to the all-star game from the braves uh greg maddox who's having a spectacular season also goes to the all-star game and i would guess the only reason he didn't get the start is probably because he had a start a couple days prior and and didn't want to hurt his arm Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a little anecdote about the team as well. On June 12th, the team was so red hot that their plane actually caught smoke after a series in Montreal, uh, which definitely seems very, very hazardous. It's almost too good for their own good. Yeah. I mean, hey, when you're hot, you're hot. Yeah. So the strong play uh, continued on in the second half. They went 46-29 and 29 after the All-Star break. And like Chris mentioned – the 13 walk-off wins throughout the regular season. And, you know, you have your, your Chipper Jones, your Fred McGriffs, your David Justices, these bigger names. But 
they got these big walk-off contributions and these late-inning heroics from everyone. And one person I wanted to point out, Dwight Smith. Uh, you may know him for being the father of Dwight Smith Jr. from the Orioles, who just played in the uh, MLB Players League for MLB The Show. In his 39th plate appearance of the year in his 19th game, he comes in off the bench to pinch hit uh, against the Marlins down in the game and delivers in one of the most incredible ways you can possibly think of ending a game. Yeah, he, come, he comes in uh, virtual unknown uh, to the baseball world and makes his name in uh, the, the state of Florida. Deep right field, and the Braves win. A grand slam for Dwight Smith. I still don't understand it, but I'll take it. So, so yeah. Dwight Smith, of all people, his like I mentioned, his 39th plate appearance in his 19th game. Uh, and the team ended up winning the division. They won the NL East with a 90-54 and 54 record. That would be the best in the National League. Yeah, they basically cruised, you know, basically from the time Mark Wallers became closer, you know, you can debate the correlation that was there, but from the time Mark Wallers, Wallers took over as closer, uh, they basically cruised their way to an NL East title, uh, and no one was really in their way to stop them. Uh, just like those, you know, Florida Marlins, uh, you know, weren't able to weren't able to stop the Braves. And Mark Wallers had a really really special year, especially for a guy you don't really hear about. You know, yeah. 1995 was his. Uh, was his showcase year uh, for lack of a better term. And after taking over the closers role on June 5th, he had a one, four, five ERA in 49 and two thirds innings. He was 25 for 27 in save opportunities. And he only allowed one home run again, 49 and two thirds innings, only one home run allowed. And he had 70 strikeouts, which was about 12.6, 12.7 per nine. Uh, to go along with just 12 walks, has a 5.8 strikeout-to-walk ratio. And of all pitchers who pitched 50-plus innings in 1995, he was second in strikeouts per nine and first in fielding independent pitching. He had a 188 fielding independent pitching, which is, you know, you can see why the team was able to uh, do a lot better while he was the closer. I mean, 25 for 27 save opportunities, a 1.88 FIP for the entire year. That's not even including what he did from June 5th on. But that wasn't even the best season as a pitcher uh, from from the Braves that year. Greg Maddox, I mean, what else can you say about this guy? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Greg Maddox, this 1995 season is becoming one of my more favorite seasons, kind of more under the radar uh, seasons in baseball history. You know, everyone, you think of great seasons and you very well should. You think of, you know, 99 and 2000 Pedro. You think of 68 Gibson. Um, 14 Kershaw. 
14 Kershaw. Uh, you could think of any year between 99 and 2002 for Randy Johnson. But Greg Maddox in 1995, this is another season you should think of. This was his fourth of four Cy Youngs in a row. One Cy Young unanimously and very well deserved as uh, you're about to hear and finished top three in the MVP voting. Crazy year from Greg Maddox. Had a 9.7 baseball reference war. And you also have to consider the team only played 144 games. If he's yeah. in a full 162-game season, that, the that war could be near 11. Yeah. And that 9.7 baseball reference war was just way above and beyond the rest of the National League. Uh, there was – no other pitcher in the National League who had more than five wins above replacement. He doubled the, He nearly doubled the field. Nearly doubled the field, yes. And uh, his winning percentage, which was 905, is the highest winning percentage since 1875, minimum 20 decisions. Not 1975. You know, that would be impressive, you know, Last 20 years. 20 years, highest winning percentage. It's 1875, 120 years it had been since someone with at least 20 decisions had a higher winner, winning percentage than uh, Greg Maddox in 1995. And not only that, that's just the start of, you know, this historic, you know, where you put it among, uh, among historic seasons. His ERA plus... Uh, is the fourth best single season ERA plus of all time uh, among pitchers with more than 105 innings. Most all time. And of those with 205 plus innings, uh, he has the lowest slugging percentage in a single season in the last 40 years and the least amount of extra base hits allowed in a single season in the last 50 years. By the way, I know we mentioned this earlier, but 205 innings pitched in a shortened season. Think about yeah. that. Yeah, he had uh, seven and a half innings per start, which is something that you didn't see a lot back then, and you definitely don't see any of that now. And he was the only man, only man with 11-plus decisions on the road to go undefeated on the road in a single season. Only man in MLB history. MLB history, only man with 11-plus decisions on the road to go undefeated on the road in a single season. He went 13-0 and also had a 1-1-2 ERA. That 1-1-2 ERA is the lowest single-season road earned run average in the last 50 years, minimum 80, 80 innings pitched. And by the and way, it's not just – is it last 50 years in, like now or last 50 years then? Last 50 years now. Okay, still. Crazy, crazy stuff. And, you know, he obviously did extremely well on the road, as I'm, as I'm telling you. Eight of his 10 complete games were, on the, were actually on the road. He, you know, he felt at home when he was on the road. And uh, I mentioned complete games. He had five complete games with less than 100 pitches. You hear the term Maddox. It's because of performances like that. A Maddox, it's literally verbiage in MLB now because of yeah. stuff that he did, uh, you know, in the 1995 season and the seasons before that. Maddox is uh, a complete game with less than 100 pitches. He had five of those in 1995, 
and he had three with less than 90 pitches. Mm-hmm. So most of those most of those complete games with less than 100 pitches were actually less than 90 pitches as well. And where it ranks among uh, all time, he has the third. So since batting, batting against stats were measured, it was in 1918. If you go back to 1917 and before that, uh, you can't see like Walter Johnson's average against or on-base percentage against. So I can only confirm what he did since 19, how he compares uh, since 1918, but that is, he has the third lowest single season OPS against uh, in, since 1918. Uh, his single season OPS against that was 482. He had a 482 OPS against, and you also have to consider he is in an offensive era. This is the mid 90s. This is when you know the the steroid era is uh, hitting its stride. He had the second lowest single season OPS plus against uh, in MLB history uh, in that 1995 season. Hitters had a 29 OPS plus against, or hitters had a 29 OPS plus against Greg Maddox that season. It was an absolute tear of a year. And Not even fair. People, people are going to have to remember this season like they remember you know, the, the 99 Pedros, the, the 2000 Pedros, the 68 Gibsons, because all of the Randy right Johnson. up there with it. Yeah. And oh, by the way, that's only one third of the Hall of Famers in this pitching rotation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Braves, of course, they had the big three at the top of the rotation. That's what's behind me right now. You see Greg Maddox uh, to, I guess, my, I don't know, directions right now. That guy right there, that's Greg Maddox. On top of me is John Smoltz. Over there is Tom Glavin. And speaking of Glavin, uh, he finished third in the Cy Young voting that season. And Smoltz, uh, he ranked fifth in the NL in fielding independent pitching. So they both had great years uh, as well. And let's talk about the rookie Chipper Jones. You mentioned him earlier with the walk-off home run. He finished second in rookie of the year voting with an 803 OPS. Uh, Very good, especially to start his major league campaign and later become who we now know as a near-unanimous Hall of Famer. Uh, Javi Lopez, the catcher of the team, an 842 OPS, which ranks second among catchers with 350-plus plate appearances. How about uh, the youngster, Ryan Klesko, his age 24 season? He had a 1,004 OPS, which was third among NL players with at least 350 plate appearances. Uh, Marquise Grissom, their leadoff guy, he won a gold glove. Greg Maddox won one of his, what, 18 gold gloves that year? Yeah. <laughs> Tom Glavin also won a silver slugger and the team led the MLB in ERA and FIP uh, with a 344 and 358 respectively. So now we go into the playoffs. It's time to prove themselves because, you know, this team has been great in the regular season before, but if you don't win a championship, it doesn't matter. So uh, game one of the National League Division Series, they played the Rockies and it was the first uh, playoff game in Rockies history. But unfortunately, uh, it didn't exactly have the sports world's attention. Why? Well, uh, that was the exact day, October 3rd, 1995, that O.J. Simpson's verdict came out, not guilty. <laughs> uh, so the sports world's attention was turned away from that a bit, but we did get some ninth-inning heroics in that game from Chipper Jones in a tie game. I uh, was able to bring the Braves into the lead, a lead they would hold for the rest of the game. Chris, uh, roll that tape. Forgot to forgot to go to the YouTube uh, video. 
yeah, here comes Chip Jones coming in, having a, you know, it's his first playoff game, and he's going to make sure everyone remembers uh, his first playoff game. That's right. Chipper Jones leads off the top half of the sixth inning, sends one deep to right field. Larry Walker to the warning track. This ball is gone. Home run for Chipper Jones to lead off the top half of the sixth inning, and that makes it a 3-2 to two Colorado lead. Second home run they saw that was in the ninth inning to put the Braves up, and they win five to four. In game two, uh, the I guess the offensive player of the game was Marquise Grissom. He hit two home runs, and the Braves actually went down four to three in the ninth uh, with Kurt Lascanic on for the save for the Rockies, and they ended up scoring four runs in the ninth to come back on RBIs from Fred McGriff, Mike Mordecai, and Rafael Belliard, as you're about to see. That's tough. Well, that ties the game. Obviously not RBIs for Belliard because those are uh, on errors. But one thing you're probably wonder wondering is who is Mike Mordecai, that guy that who had the uh, the game-winning hit up the middle? I mean, he won the game for the Braves. Let me tell you about Mike Mordecai. Uh, after that game, he was interviewed about his hit, and he said, quote, I'm not a household name, and it wouldn't bother me if I never was, but I'd like to be a world champion, which is, you know, very good mentality from a guy of his caliber. But I, I saw that interview, and I was like, you know what? I think it's only fitting on the show to be named later if we make Mike Mordecai a household name. So that's exactly what I did. I'm going to give you some Mike Mordecai stats here and make sure that this name is engraved in your head. In 1995, Mordecai hit 385, 407, 769 for an 1177 OPS in 26 plate appearances versus lefties. This is a guy that obviously, you know, he was – more of a pinch hitter off the bench guy, but when he got those opportunities against lefties, he came through. Also, that same season, he hit 412, 462, 706, 1167 in 39 plate appearances on the road. Like Greg Maddox, he felt at home on the road. And the best one, he hit 438, 524, 750, 
1274 in 22 plate appearances in 1995 in the regular season with runners in scoring position. That is called making the best of your opportunities, Chris. And that's the best way to become a household name without really having to be a household name. Yeah, to make a parallel or to a recent guy of memory, you could compare him to like um, Steve Pierce in 2018. And I know uh, this guy produced a little more, but even like Howie Kendrick in uh, 2019 for the Nationals. Mike Mordecai, you're a household name on the show to be named later. And in game three, uh, getting past that, the game actually went into extra innings, uh, and uh, Luis Polonia for the Braves hit a game-tying single with two outs in the ninth. So another um, blown save for the Rockies. But it was their turn this time for late-inning heroics. Uh, The winning run was delivered by Andres Galarraga, and the Rockies won on the road 7-5. to So the Braves, they were still one win away from clinching, and they needed to get it done. And they had Greg Maddox going, so what could go wrong? Well, it turns out something could. In game four, the Rockies actually took a 3-0 lead off of Maddox, but the Braves' offense went off anyway. Marquise Grissom went 5-for-5 in this game. Fred McGriff had three hits, one home run, and five RBIs, and every Braves starter reached safely at least once, and the Braves ended up winning 10-7, to and they advanced to the National League Championship Series. Chris, roll the tape. Uh, yeah, I'm just pre- preparing these next clips. But yeah, 1995, the Braves are looking to advance the NLCS, which isn't a big deal for them, but it's it's another uh, another stepping stone to get to that uh, precious piece of metal. Braves a strike away from advancing, a half swing, and they'll go to Cincinnati for the National League Championship Series. On a night when the Colorado Rockies score four runs off the premier pitcher in the game, Greg Maddox, and have a 3-0 lead, the Braves come from behind, win the game by a score of 10-4, and with Ted Turner and Gene Fonda looking on, They'll move to Cincinnati for the first game of the National League Championship Series on Tuesday. How much does it suck to end your season on a check swing? That's tough. That's tough. Yeah, I mean, you it's can't to... say you go, you went down swinging, and you can't really even say you went down looking either. Yeah, not really. Uh, yeah, it goes down on a high fastball. And the Braves are in the National League Championship Series, a very familiar place for them. But they were not uh, supposed to win this. They were they were severe underdogs. Yeah, did they have a worse record than the Reds? No, they had the best record in the NL. Oh, right. But you would have thought the Reds had the momentum because they swept the Dodgers in the division series. Yeah, yeah. And what we've learned from the show is sweeping does not always lead to momentum, but I guess the Braves can be a, a counterexample to, to that. But in game one, and I remember, you know, I, I watched a couple of the uh, – NLCS broadcasts of the season and the mood of the series was like this is probably going to go about seven games and you could understand that because mm-hmm. you know it was very close the entire se- series and also the Braves were kind of uh, you know not down a man but 
you know, a man was compromised. David John, uh, David Justice uh, got injured in game four of the National League Division Series. Uh, he fouled the ball off his knee, and he was day-to-day as the series went on. You, you never really knew uh, exactly if he was going to play. Um, so that lack of security, especially in a, in a, on a team where the lineup isn't the most dominant uh, aspect of the team, definitely something that kind of worries you if you're a Braves fan. Yeah. And, you know, the offense didn't do great in game one, but they didn't need to be great at all. Uh, they go extras again because it was tied one-to-one. Why was it tied one-to-one? It was become, because Tom Glavin uh, was able to really hold the Reds' offense uh, down. Goes seven innings, uh, allows one run, gets five strikeouts, two walks. Uh, actually had to, had to pitch a lot with runners in scoring position, but I believe the Reds as a team – for the whole game, I think they went one for nine with runners in scoring position. Yeah. Uh, so Glavin and the rest of the staff were really able to um, make the best pitches when it mattered most. And, you know, as I mentioned before, the game goes into extra innings. And that leads to, you know, the, the late inning magic. This team is able to get things going in the late innings. You got Mike Devereaux up with a man in scoring position. So that gives the Braves the lead, as Al Michaels said, uh, making it two to one. They end up winning the game two to one, uh, but you know there's no sense of security. I mean, you just went into extra innings with yeah. the best teams in the National League, and what happens in Game Two? It's another incredibly close game. Uh, John Smoltz had a spectacular performance. And uh, his counterpart also had a spectacular performance. I remember Smoltz, both the runs that scored off of Smoltz, the runners who got on got on via bunt. So they really had to stretch to uh, get those runs. But luckily for the Reds, they were able to hold the Braves offense down. That was the case until the 10th inning. Uh, The Braves loaded up the bases and a wild pitch actually scored the go-ahead run to make it three to two, but you know three to two isn't you know, the most secure lead in the world, and you know you need to make it. You need to make do with the runners you have on, and Javi Lopez is about to show you uh, how he was able to do that. Lopez hits one deep to left field and down the line, and that one is fair. It hits the foul pole screen. That thing was absolutely smoked. No doubt. Braves a six to two lead, 
and eventually the two to nothing series lead heading back to Atlanta. And, you know, the Braves are probably in the ideal situation. They're back at Atlanta. They have a 2-0 series lead, and they've got Greg Maddox on the mound uh, to try and get this victory. And Greg Maddox did what Greg Maddox is. He, he really, you know, Greg Maddox, he's a great pitcher, but his playoff identity wasn't really set until uh, this series. And Maddox uh, really started to come into his own as a playoff pitcher. He went eight innings, allowed seven hits, two walks, one run, had four strikeouts. Um, he shut them out for what I believe was the first six or seven innings. And David Wells was actually able to shut the Braves out for the first five innings. Uh, but that stint came to a close when a Braves catcher not named Javi Lopez came up. Charlie O'Brien comes up to the plate with two men on. Charlie O'Brien comes up to the plate with two men on, uh, has two strikes on him. You may be thinking that he's not much of a threat, but David Wells is about to be shown why you need to be careful around these Braves catchers. 2-2 to O'Brien. Gives them the three to nothing lead. Yeah. And uh, they only needed that's that's all those are all the runs that they needed. They end up winning the game. Five to two gets some insurance runs. Uh, Maddox holds it down for the most part. And uh, Wohler, I believe it was Wohlers who got the save. I think uh, right. whoever came in, in the ninth gave up one run, but that yeah. doesn't end up mattering at all. And in game four, uh, Bobby Cox is confident in Steve Avery to have his first playoff start of the season, and it paid off for him, for sure. He goes six innings, allows just two hits, three walks, no runs, has six strikeouts, and uh, the team a little late, or not, you know, they got, they got going uh, with scoring a little earlier than they did in game three, Mark Lemke uh, gets an RBI single in the third, and then Mike Devereaux breaks the, go breaks the game open uh, with a three-run home run to uh, put the Braves on top, five to nothing. And, you know, Steve Avery obviously shut it down and leads us to the ninth inning where the Braves are looking to get to – are looking to get to their third World Series in the past. In the past. Uh, <laughs> five years, four seasons. Yeah. Five years and four po uh, postseasons.
The Braves going back. That's right. Uh, yeah, they, you know, and it was funny. I mean, they were a little more excited out there, but uh, when I watched the Braves World Series DVD, the interviews seemed pretty sedated because it was, <laughs> it, it seemed, it, it's normal and they didn't have a World Series at the time. It reminds yeah. me of like uh, Bill Belichick when he wins the AFC Championship. Uh, he just kind of tosses he tosses the trophy to another yeah. person who probably appreciates it more. They were, you know, poised and ready to go for the World Series. Uh, some stats from that National League Championship Series: Mike Devereaux, uh, he wins the National League Championship Series MVP, uh, slashes 308, 357, 615 with a 973 OPS, has a home run and five RBI in those four games. Uh, Chipper Jones was spectacular. He hit 438 uh, with an 1151 OPS in the series. Javi Lopez hits 357 with a 1000 OPS. McGriff uh, hit 438 with a 1214 OPS. And the Braves' uh, entire pitching staff, from the top to the bottom, from Greg Maddox uh, to, you know, the middle innings guy, the team had a 115 ERA. Uh, the Reds batted 209, had a 282 on base percentage, uh, 261 slugging, and 543 OPS against that Braves team. Uh, Reds just couldn't find their groove at all, like basically the entire rest of the league uh, in 1995. Yeah, uh, that is right. So the Braves have gone on to the World Series, and they're facing the Cleveland Indians. And this Indians team... They're no joke, Chris. 144, 10 wins better than the Braves, might I add. Uh, the most runs per game uh, and highest OPS since the 1953 Brooklyn Dodgers. Also, they led the, a the AL in FIP. So this team was really good offensively, and they were really good with pitching. And it was, you know, the Braves were really going to have to step up for this challenge like none other. And in game one, uh, an unearned run scored by the Indians in the first uh, however, Fred McGriff was able to tie it in the second with a home run, and the Braves uh, loaded it up in the seventh, and they scored on a fielder's choice and a suicide squeeze by Belliard. Uh, Maddox went nine innings pitched, zero earned runs. There were a couple unearned runs in there. Two hits, zero walks, and the Braves won three to two. Uh, in game two, um, Javi Lopez stepped up and hit a go-ahead shot in the sixth. Chris, why don't you play that clip? Yeah, here we are. It's tied two to two. Uh, they're at what was it? Turner Field was it? It was Fulton County Stadium. Fulton County Stadium. Well, this was before Turner, ironically, because Turner's gone now. Yeah, how crazy is that? <laughs> it did not last. But here he is, Javi Lopez. Another one-two pitch. Sidearm again in the air to deep center. This at least gets a run home, maybe more. Lofton will watch it leave. That ball just kept on carrying, and Lopez continues to be a clutch performer in the postseason, snapping the two-all tie, and the Braves lead it. To have some power to hit that one out. That was right on the black. That, was, center, that might have yeah. been out of the strike zone. So uh, the Braves won 4-3. to three. Of course, that put them up 4-2. to two. The Indians' offense was held to an 0-96 average in the first two games. That beast of an offense with Albert Bell 
uh, guys like Manny Ramirez. They had, um, what else? Kenny Lofton. I mean, they had Jim Tomey was on this team. You know, so many great hitters that just went completely silent. Uh, in game three, uh, the team scored three in the eighth uh, to take a 6-5 lead. And Sandy Alomar ended up tying it with an RBI double. And Eddie Murray from the Indians, another great hitter that I didn't mention there, he walked it off in the 11th. So the Indians won game three. Um, and in game four, uh, Klesko and Bell, uh, being Ryan Klesko from the Braves and Alan Bell or Albert Bell from the Indians, they trade solo home runs in the sixth. Luis Polonia drives in Marquise Grissom in for the, uh, from first in the seventh. And David Justice hits a two-run single to make it four to one. Uh, that's just a brief uh, summary of the scoring. But the Braves won 5-2, to two, and they were one game away from winning the World Series, up 3-1. to one. And in Game 5, uh, the offense went a bit silent. Oral Hershiser went eight innings pitched, five hits, one run, one walk, and six Ks for the Tribe. Bell and Tommy both hit home runs. And Ryan Klesko in the ninth homered for his third straight game. But that unfortunately wasn't enough and the Indians won it 5-4. to four. So they're going back to Fulton County. The Braves are up 3-2. to two. They still have one more win. And they had been in this situation before, and they knew not to be cocky about it. They knew that they couldn't celebrate until it was over. You know, Yogi Berra always said, it ain't over until it's over. And that's the exact mentality that, that the Braves had through this entire postseason. And in Game 6, uh, the, char- the charisma took a little bit of a spin as David Justice actually complained about the lack of energy that had been in Fulton Fulton County Stadium before the game. He said it didn't really live up to what it was in 91 and 92. And uh, Tom Glavin, you know, he put on a strong performance in the game, eight innings pitched, one hit, zero runs, three walks, and eight Ks. And who is it that brings the energy? None other than David Justice, leading off the sixth inning in a scoreless tie, Something needed to happen, and David Justice brings the energy. 1-1 pitch. A long drive to right. Ramirez turns to the track. She's gone. Dave Justice, all is forgiven in Atlanta. Bob, it's okay to talk the talk if you can walk the walk. <laughs> I love just a random Bill Murray cameo in that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Braves go up one nothing in the sixth, and in the ninth inning, who else but Mark Walters is on for the save in a one nothing game? Skip Carey had an absolutely legendary call of this. Chris, let's play some history. 51,000 plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. Swung. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Fans rushing on the field, and the constables restrain them. 
the Atlanta Braves have brought the first championship to Atlanta. Yeah, literally the first championship in Atlanta. Uh, their last championship was won 30-some-odd years beforehand uh, while they were in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So the first one with the Atlanta Braves franchise. And the Atlanta Braves finally win the World Series. It was long overdue, but it happened. Tom Glavin won World Series MVP. He went 2-0 and with 14 innings pitched, four hits, two runs, six walks, and 11 Ks. The team had a 2-6-7 ERA in the World Series, and the Indians batted 179, 273, 303 with a 575 OPS uh, against the Braves. Ryan Klesko also went 313, 421, 875 slugging percentage for a 1296 OPS. Fred McGriff, 261, 346, 609 for a 955 OPS. And David Justice, an 850 OPS with five RBIs. So what is the legacy that this team leaves behind? Well, there was the one thing that came to mind for me was that they had just so much depth and there was no like one guy that you wanted in the big situations. You know, there wasn't like a, we need this guy and we need to look out for when this guy comes up. Everyone just stepped up. You know, Mark Wolders, we've talked about him so much and how key he was stepping up as the closer. He had a 455 ERA in the two previous seasons. Like th- this was not something you could have predicted at the season at all at, in spring training, that he was going to come up and be this lockdown closer. Uh, Mike Devereaux, the guy who won NLCS MVP, he was acquired late in the season. And he only had 57 plate appearances with the Braves. You know, he steps up in that big way, especially when David Justice goes down. Chipper Jones, in his rookie year, he was one of the best offensive contributors to the team all season. Rafael Belliard, he became a starter in the World Series because Jeff Blauser couldn't play. He was hurt, and he had an RBI in game one of the World Series. And also, uh, Charlie O'Brien, the backup catcher of all people, hits a huge home run in game three of the NLCS. And the thing that comes to mind is like, yeah, you have Greg Maddox. You have the big three. You have this Hall of Fame pitching staff with a star-studded offense with guys like McGriff and guys like Justice. You have a Hall of Fame manager in Bobby Cox. You have a Hall of Fame executive in John Sheerholtz. But it was the unexpected guys that came through just as often. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, like you mentioned, it was it was a star-studded team, mm-hmm. but maybe that's maybe you know the lack of I guess role players kind of held them back in '91, '92, and '93. I mean, they they literally got it was literally all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike Devereaux was on the highlight reel countless times, and he's he's not <laughs> you know rem- remembered as an absolute legend, you know, Chipper Jones in his rookie year, uh, making key contributions. Javi Lopez, one of the best, cat, one of the best uh, offensive catchers that year. And then, yeah, you have the Mike Mordecai's, you have the uh, you know, Luis Polonia's, Rafael Belliard's. Everyone was able to contribute positively, uh, especially in the playoffs too. Yeah. I mean, everyone was a threat. There was no single easy out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the fight in the team really helped them, and it, that's probably why they went eleven and three in the playoffs too. Yeah, I mean, and there were so many of those games they could have lost. Like they were, there were two games against the Rockies where they were down in the ninth. Obviously, they ended up losing one of them anyway, but still. And then you know you have two extra inning games with the Reds. You have uh, some late inning drama with the Indians as well. I mean, this team very easily could have gone south 
if not for some huge uh, late inning heroics in pretty much every game. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in an alternate universe, this team gets bounced by the Rockies. Exactly. In, uh, by the Blake Street Bombers. Yeah. Who are in the third year of their um, championship run and, and maybe they never win a world series, but that, you know, the team was unbelievably clutch as you mentioned. Yeah. So uh, is that is that all you got on the 1995 Braves? The 1995 Braves, of course, the world championship, Atlanta Braves, the only one, uh, the only Braves team to win to this point. Uh, and they are they are a very admirable bunch. Like when I watched, you know, some of their their post game interviews, like I mentioned, they were very humble and they did not celebrate and they did not hint at anything until it was over because they knew that, you know, they've been there and lost so many times. They've been on the wrong end. They've gotten the short end of the stick so many times. And that was the time where they finally broke through when they needed to. And it became, you know, just such an admirable team on all cylinders. Yeah, and it it wasn't – even their best players weren't guys who were given crazy, God-given mm-hmm. talent. Their two best pitchers were guys who could locate and guys who could throw – two uh like great change-ups you know Greg Maddox and and Tom Glavin they were guys who probably barely scraped 90 at the time Smoltz was really the only guy that was throwing kind of hard and even him he wasn't that was a power pitcher yeah he wasn't really a a guy that was blowing anybody away you know but he was he just, yeah he just had the tools he you know was able to mix mix speeds very well with a with a good slider and a good change-up and even and, guys like Steve Avery too like he he stepped up in the playoffs when needed as a four starter. Yeah. So it, it definitely represents the, the identity of this, of this 1995 team. It mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, got, it wasn't a, all, you know, a team full of, you know, Randy Johnson's and Barry Bonds's mm-hmm. guys who, uh, you know, just really knew how to play baseball along with, you know, whatever talent they had. I mean, for every Fred Fred McGriff, there's a Mike Mordecai. For every Chipper Jones, there's a Mike Devereaux. For every yes. David Justice, there's a Charlie O'Brien. You know, it's the superstars were, were contributing just as much as the guys off the bench. Yeah. So that leads us into our our favorite part of the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh I didn't mention it at the beginning of the episode. I think it's kind of just tradition to, to to address at the end of the episode. That's kind of what we do. Yeah, I guess, and it, I guess it encourages people to listen to the uh, to the other episodes just to figure out what's going on. But uh, because there's no baseball going on right now, uh, we've decided to, you know, give a lesson to the listeners and and mostly ourselves uh, by looking at one player and one team per week like Albert Pujols and the 1995 Braves. Uh, I've picked 30 players um, that have now been trimmed down to 25 because we've already done five players. And, you know, uh, Daniel is going to pick a number between one and 25, whatever number is assigned to that player. And the player's number is just random not what they wore on their back. Uh, whatever number he picks, that will be the player we'll, we will be talking about next week. And whatever number I pick, 
uh, whatever team is assigned to that number. Uh, that is the team we will be talking about. So uh, who picked first last time? I think I did. Um, yeah, I think that seems right. We'll just first. go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't really matter. So Chris, uh, I am going to go with uh, number 15. Number 15. Okay, this is yet another uh, World Series championship team. A team that we've uh, sort of discussed quite a bit on this show, particularly with the performance a one postseason legend, the 2014 San Francisco Giants. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is a, a very, team that, this is yeah, this most is recent. basically carried by Bumgarner mm-hmm. and yeah. basically clutch hitting for that postseason. That's right. Yeah, I was wondering what team you were going what, – what Giants team you were going to pick. It was going to be one of the three championship teams. Each one has their own cool identity, but this one I definitely remember the most. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I, I can Daniel's get some perfect into this one. I'm going to go with number one. Number Very one. one on the list. Number one. So uh, in the Albert Pujols portion of the episode, I mentioned uh, he, w- he is one of three players to oh. have seven consecutive eight-win seasons. And uh, one of the other players is number one. We're going to be talking about one of the greatest players of all time. Uh, one, the Say Hey Kid Willie Mays. Willie Mays, one of a top three player of all time, has to be, right? Absolutely, in my opinion, yeah. So this, this is a whole Giants episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the second time we've done that one. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, yeah, and I have my, uh, my mom went to San Francisco a couple years ago and got me a San Francisco shirt, so I'll have that ready Perfect. for the episode. All right. Yeah. This is super, super exciting. And yeah, that leads to the conclusion of our episode. Uh, if, you, uh, if you are listening just audibly, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, it is STBNL with Chris Gianta and Daniel Curran. Right. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Chris underscore Gianta. If you want to follow Daniel on Twitter, you can follow him at Daniel underscore Curran. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode about Albert Pujols and the 1995 Braves. And we will see you next week when we are talking about Willie Mays and the 2014 San Francisco Giants. See you next time.